This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We start out today's program with good news. We will shortly be speaking with Greg Bell the guiding light of the classic radio station, which you can hear on Sirius XM, which we certainly hope that most of you have. Greg does a great job of hosting the looks back they they take at some of the classic radio shows from the 1930s to 60s, and sometimes uh, since then. I've been a fan for years and looking very forward to speaking with Greg a little bit later in the show. Stay tuned for that. We also want to note that more somber... But no doubt about it, good news item for today's program is the return of David Talbot. We have been privileged on this program to speak with David Talbot on three separate occasions about his book on the Kennedy brothers, about his book on Alan Dulles, and about his book on Smedley Butler, a name that should be familiar to all Americans, but unfortunately is not. We, we do want to take the time to plug all of those programs available on our archives at radioparallax.com. We also, by the way, enormously enjoyed a talk we had with David's sister, Margaret Talbot, about the book she wrote about their father, Lyle, an actor known to you from both Ozzy and Harriet, TV sitcom from the 50s, and that all-time classic Plan 9 from Outer Space. David Talbot grew up in a Hollywood environment with his dad being an actor and such, He subsequently went on to become quite the activist, the founder of Salon.com, and a tireless activist author. His book, Season of the Witch, was a smash bestseller several years ago, told the story of, well, his, his love affair with the city of San Francisco. We mentioned on this show two years ago that David was felled by a stroke. It was a serious stroke and required a good deal of rehabilitation. Thankfully, Last week, he was able to go before the public and do very well in his public speaking about his newest book, Between Heaven and Hell, The Story of My Stroke. David has wanted to tell his story in writing, and he's done so, I have to say, having... I'm pleased to be able to report that David Talbot is back. And to prove that, I think I will excerpt briefly from his new book, Between Heaven and Hell. He describes his ambulance transfer from the ER to the stroke center after they realized that's where he needed to be. The three emergency technicians were my heroes. I had the feeling they were rescuing me from a sad medical ending. The air outside the ER ramp was sharply cold and I knew by this point that I wanted to live. I started to thank the ambulance crew, but by now my speech was hopelessly sloppy. I couldn't make myself understood. Parts of me were still failing. The ambulance crew chief phoned the Davies ICU admissions team to alert them we were on the way. Fortune still seemed to be smiling on me, though like me it had a crooked smile. Suddenly there was tension in the crew chief's voice. What do you mean there's no room? St. Luke's was supposed to set this up hours ago, he said into the phone, his voice rising. The crew chief and the Davies administrator on the other end of the line argued for two or three minutes. My fate was in their hands. I began to laugh. The sound came out of my mouth like a strangled cry. I was going to die because of a bureaucratic screw-up. Somehow it seemed a properly absurd end. But the ambulance chief would not be denied. Look, I've got this guy in a route, and I have nowhere else to take him. I'm bringing him to you. We'll be there in two minutes. 
And that, dear readers, is how I made it into the tender expert hands of the intensive care unit at the Davies Hospital. Because my wife simply refused to let me die, and because my ambulance crew chief was a stubborn, obstinate man who refused to take no for an answer. Bless his heart, David has agreed to return to our program, and we very much look forward to the day that happens, hopefully in the next month or so. Something else we intend to do in the next month or so is to take a look back at one of the few heroes we have here at Radio Parallax. That would be the polymath, Isaac Asimov. Isaac Asimov was born 100 years ago this month in Russia. We've often said on this program, if the Martians came down to Earth and wanted to take one human being that knew the most, well, Asimov was the guy they should have grabbed. We really must do some sort of tribute to the great Isaac Asimov, and we'll, we'll do you know, our best to see that we fulfill that. Another anniversary we want to just cite, although we probably won't do a special show on it, is the fact that it was 40 years ago this month, January 1980, that a team of California-based scientists led by Nobel Prize-winning physicist Louis Alvarez and his geologist son Walter Alvarez first publicly proposed a truly earth-shattering explanation for one of life's most enigmatic episodes, the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. Forty years on, it appears that the evidence now amassed shows that Alvarez, or should I say the Alvarezes, were right. We now know where the meteor struck the earth, the Yucatan Peninsula. They may have found some fossil evidence in the Dakotas that took place within hours of that great smash up. And yet, as is often the case in science, the picture is still being rounded out. There is compelling evidence that a large eruption of lava on the Indian subcontinent, which took place at an almost identical time frame, no doubt also contributed to the death of those giant reptiles. One practical aspect of our knowledge that disaster can strike from the skies is that uh, NASA and others are tracking to locate the near-Earth asteroids which could pose a hazard in the not-so-distant future. It is universally agreed, of course, that it's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. It is also a topic we expect to spend some time on in 2020. Closer to Earth, there's something we may not get a chance to spend a great deal of time on, and that is the impeachment of Donald Trump. Because if the evil conspiracy of Republicans has their way, it's not going to be much of a trial. I did have to note with some sadness the traipsing out of 100 senators, all of whom promised impartial justice in the question of the Trump impeachment. Even though, I think it can be said, in the case of the Republicans at least, every single one of them was lying. That opinion, of course, is mine alone and in no way represents that of the station you are listening to or its sponsors. And from the miscellaneous file, we have this. Dateline Los Angeles. Actor Hank Azaria said he won't be the voice of Apu on The Simpsons. This call goes back to the contention by comedian Hari Kondabolu, who released a documentary titled The Problem with Apu, wherein he alleges that people of South Asian descent feel bad growing up that Apu was one of their only representatives on the American television scene. Representatives for the Simpsons did not comment on this latest statement by Hank Azaria. Back in 2018, during one of their episodes, Lisa addresses the controversy by saying, something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. What can you do? At that point, she looks over at a framed picture of Apu, which has the line, don't have a cow written on it. 
At that time, series creator Matt Groening also spoke about the issue, in which he said, I'm proud of what we do on the show, and I think it's a time in our culture where people love to pretend they're offended. And speaking of being offended, let's take a turn back to the Trump impeachment to repeat the meme, which we reported on the show some weeks back, wherein someone posed, if you're having trouble following the impeachment hearings, let me summarize. Of those who are willing to testify under oath, all say Trump committed crimes. Of those who say Trump did not commit crimes, none were willing to testify under oath. And that's about it. Tell you what, if Lev Parnas is not called to testify before the Senate, well, the fix is in. I want to do some follow-up also on our obituary on last week's program for the late, great Buck Henry. We mentioned that he wrote a screenplay for The Graduate from the novel by Charles Webb. I stumbled on an article about Charles Webb on his wife from, a, from our archives. It was a piece that appeared in Radar. And it's so off the wall that it deserves a few minutes of our time. But we're a little pressed for time today, so I'm going to put that off till next week. And instead, at this point, jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for humble bragging with the news that Burt Ward, who played Robin to Adam West Batman on the campy 1960s TV series, claimed the network officials made him take penis-reducing pills to reduce a too-large bulge in his skin-tight costume. Ward, now 74, says he complied for three days, but then just used my cape to cover it. Now, as a physician licensed to practice in the state of California, and furthermore, one who for several years operated a clinic which dealt with questions of erectile dysfunction, I believe I'm qualified to state, in relation to Mr. Ward's statements, that there are in fact no such thing as penis-reducing pills. Sadly, there's also no such thing as penis-enlarging pills. And, by the way, we're slightly irked that our calls into Mr. Burt Ward's publicist in an effort to bring, on, in effort to bring him on this program have so far proved fruitless. Of course, maybe that's just as well, because now we have a new question to ask him. Anyway, yeah, we're still huge fans of Batman and, and Adam West and Burt Ward. Anyway, moving right along, according to the Week magazine, it was a bad week last week for alternative realities after the White House Twitter account released a picturesque photo of the official presidential home, that of course being the White House, against a night sky full of snowflakes beneath the caption, first snow of the year, exclamation point. However, it should be noted that temperatures in Washington, D.C. actually soared to 70 degrees that day and never got below a balmy 53. Yes, alternative realities indeed. And it was an ugly week last week for the conservative group One Million Moms. The reason being that 
one million moms wants Burger King to cancel a commercial in which a man says, damn, that tastes good. That's in the wake of the man trying the chain's new meatless hamburgers. One million moms says Burger King should have chosen to edit out the cuss word, which it said is extremely destructive and damaging to impressionable children. To which I have to say, damn, I wouldn't think so. And uh, also, Dateline Los Angeles, 20th Century Fox, a name and Clegg Light logo that stretches back 85 years in Hollywood, is dropping the word Fox, a move that may prevent consumers mistakenly thinking that the movie studio has anything to do with Rupert Murdoch's polarizing Fox News media empire. The Walt Disney Company bought most of Murdoch's entertainment assets last year in a $73 billion deal, and that included the 20th Century Fox studio. A Disney spokesman has confirmed that the label will now officially be known as 20th Century Studios and Searchlight Pictures. They're going to drop Fox from their logos. We think this is kind of a shame. And speaking of James Bond-type villains, and no, we don't mean Rupert Murdoch. Well, we, we do consider Rupert Murdoch a James Bond villain, but that's another story. As much as yours truly has no taste for Stephen Colbert, I have to admit on his first show when he brought on Elon Musk and referred to Musk as a James Bond villain, he may be on to something. Not only is Tesla currently coming under the gaze of the National Highway Transport Safety Administration, in the wake of the federal agency saying it's going to review a petition to look at 500,000 Tesla cars due to several complaints about the vehicles speeding up at unintended times. Well, that's a concern, but what really got my attention was the fact that Elon Musk is telling the public that he will put 1 million people on Mars by the year 2050, which is just about the wackiest thing I've heard anybody say so far this year. Before he tries that, Why doesn't he scale it down a bit and, say, put a million people on Baffin Island? NASA and others here on planet Earth use Baffin Island to simulate the conditions found on Mars, which is good as far as it goes, except on Baffin Island you can actually breathe the air and live. There's also plenty of water. So, Video Parallax's advice to Elon Musk is start with Baffin Island. Scale up from there. And final item before we take a break to go to Greg Bell would be our announcement that here at Radio Parallax, we intend to follow the lead of the Japanese government. Over in Japan, there is a new decree ordaining that official documents should reverse the order of Japanese people's names when they are rendered in the Latin alphabet. Hitherto in say English documents, Japanese names have been written with the given name first using the Western practice. Henceforth, the family name will come first, and to banish any ambiguity, may be entirely capitalized. This announcement comes to us from The Economist, which states it will now refer to the Prime Minister as Abe Shinzo rather than Shinzo Abe. Ms. Vermillion feels that from this point forward, they're going to have to refer to him as King of Monsters Godzilla rather than 
Godzilla, King of Monsters. Well, Mr. Man tells me we've got a, a, a minute or so of, of spare time before we need to go to our chat. So um, let me pull up a meme that was sent to me by our favorite travel agent, Stan Godwin. It included a picture from a first edition book titled Ducks, How to Make Them Pay, with the attached caption. Review. Let me tell you, I was bitterly disappointed to learn that this book is in fact an instructional guide to the profitable husbandry of ducks as a craft. There is not one sliver of insight about holding ducks accountable for their crimes against humanity, earth, or God. A couple of decades ago, I was doing my medical residency and found myself living in Merced, California with a girlfriend in Sacramento and family in the Bay Area. These three locations formed a triangle with about 112 miles of driving on each side. I'd often find myself on one or the other of the legs of that triangle and discovered that a surefire way to drive away any boredom was to pull up the KNX Drama Hour out of L.A. I learned to embark around 8.45 and pick up the hour-long broadcast about 15 minutes in. Those old shows really made the time fly by. So I became a fan of the radio programs that entertained America from the 30s through the early 60s. The shows that were good were very good. I'm sorry to report that KNX elected to terminate the drama hour some years back. But luckily for me and for you, my dear listener, classic shows can still be found on your radio dial anywhere in North America if you have Sirius XM satellite. Our guest today has for some years spearheaded efforts to bring us those quality radio shows of the past through his hosting duties at When Radio Was, syndicated program. It's heard on terrestrial stations throughout the country in addition to Sirius XM. Greg Bell has been a DJ, a news director, a national talk show producer, and a program director in locations all over the U.S. It's fair to say he knows a thing or two about radio. Greg follows in the footsteps of some broadcasting greats in his current post, including Art Fleming and the legendary Stan Freeberg. Greg Bell's always entertaining background information on these shows and performers, which he provides in his breezy style, made me a fan years ago. As I mentioned, many of these old programs are very good indeed, featuring, as they did, some of the most talented entertainers in the country. Through his creative hosting, which sometimes includes tributes to particular performers, Greg Bell makes them even more fun and interesting. We're keen to talk about the many classic radio programs which still beg to be listened to and delighted to be able to say, welcome to Radio Parallax, Greg Bell. It's great to be here, Doug. You've, uh, you've worn a lot of hats in the world of radio, Greg. How did you arrive with the job of bringing these classic shows to the public? Well, it's interesting that you brought up the uh, Drama Hour on KNX. One of my many stops, I worked in uh, radio in Colorado for a while. I also worked in radio in Boise, Idaho. And while there, that uh, Drama Hour was still something I could find in the evenings, uh, thanks to, uh, to KNX. And so that was... Uh, that was one of the things that uh, that kind of drew me into it. Although I started as a kid growing up in Illinois, now I'm of the age that I was too young when these shows first came out. Which the bulk of my audience on Radio Classics at SiriusXM are also a wee bit too young to uh, to enjoy these when they first came out. And that was the idea. The idea was to introduce them. Uh, great drama, great comedy is timeless and. Uh, so you take it back in my world, I was a kid of the 70s, and I had the, um, the luxury of living right in the middle of the state of Illinois. So I had folks like um, Art Fleming, you mentioned, out of uh, St. Louis area, and then I had uh, Chuck Shaden and some other folks out of Chicago. 
then I had the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, which you may recall. Yeah. Uh, E.G. Marshall hosted that, created by Hyman Brown, who had uh, created the Inner Sanctum Mysteries back in the day. And that ran in a lot of places in the 70s into the early 80s. So those are the places where I first got to know radio theater. And, uh, and it sort of took off from there. Uh, I did not study... I studied everything but radio in college. <laughs> I, when I went to school, I... Uh, after a real brief attempt at being an aerospace engineer, I uh, ended up in um, film studies and theater. So my actual college background was was talking and studying old motion pictures. Uh, but because of that, the old radio shows dovetailed really nicely into it because so many of the same folks worked on both. Uh, you know, Jimmy Stewart had his own Western series on radio. Uh, yeah. Same thing, you know. Uh, say Dana Andrews had a had. I was a communist for the FBI on radio. <laughs> uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren McCall had their own series, Bold Venture. So, oh wow. So it it worked well for me to be a fanatic of old films and old television uh, when the radio thing came about. And uh, you know, fast forward to 2002, the early days of satellite radio. And they, I was there already. I was working uh, for a channel that's long since defunct called the USA Today channel on the XM brand, which was a, basically a radio version of the newspaper. And the folks there kept saying, we want to do these spoken word channels. We would love to add those. We would love to add kind of a modern theater channel, but we really want to do a classic radio. And when radio was, was already around. Stan Freeberg, who you mentioned, hosted before I did. He was already around uh, and been around for, for quite a while doing those shows, and uh, I jumped at the chance. And there were some series that I knew very well when I came in, and there's some series that were brand new to me when I got there, uh, which I love. I'd never, I'd never heard The Great Gildersleeve, for instance, before <laughs> I started doing it. Heard mm -hmm. Trevor McGee and Molly, heard mm -hmm. Jack Benny, mm -hmm. heard Burns and Allen, uh, but I didn't know that one. I didn't really listen to Phil Harris and Alice Faye, one of my favorite comedies now, uh, back then, but it was one I discovered with the channel. And the same thing happened with dramas. Johnny Dollar, you're truly Johnny Dollar, uh, which, as you know, as a fan, I'm sure, is, is one of the most popular shows. About, Great show. Uh, I just want to throw that. I, that, that was going to get to that, but yes, that is one of my favorites. It's very well done. And yet one I had not heard very much of at all uh, when I started doing this, this job. So it was really nice to, uh, to discover things as I went and then to draw from the stuff that I was already into to uh, to grow the channel. Well, I, I'm kind of, I guess, I guess of the of the same uh, uh, demographic as, as you, Greg, a baby boomer. I uh, I know a lot of people like us are going to be very familiar with Gunsmoke and Dragnet, big hits on TV. But I got to say, they were even better radio shows. You won't get an argument from me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think there was. There's a dynamic there that. Uh, 50s television obviously had its limitations, and so did radio. I mean, obviously it was a different time, but the it was much more obvious with television. Uh, Gunsmoke, a great example. You couldn't have, obviously, overt violence on a 1950s Gunsmoke. Uh, you couldn't have innuendo. I mean, there's a lot of things you couldn't do in the 1950s on television, but on radio... It was all up to the imagination of the people listening. Yeah. So you could, you know, Matt Dillon could be in a gunfight, 
and it could be as sanitized or as vicious and violent as your mind wanted to make it. And that was the one thing that, that where it transcended. And the other most obvious thing is, is that the writing for radio had to be tremendous. You had to tell the story in a way that you could, want for a better term, get lazy uh, with visuals. So obviously the, uh, the precursors to the TV versions, as you said, Dragnet and Gunsmoke and, and uh, any number of other series that uh, uh, most of the, a lot of the comedies I play all moved to television as well. Uh, they just had a different feel. Yeah, I have to, I have to throw out a quote from you, Greg. You said at one point uh, uh, you were impressed by radio's ability to fully paint a picture with only audio as a brush. Absolutely. Uh, again, I, as I told you at the beginning of our visit, I actually studied film and, yeah. and did stage. And so I actually started in the world of visual. I mean, I'm a silent, silent film fanatic. I mean, Buster Keaton is, is, is the end-all, be-all to me, <laughs> as an example. And, of course, Buster Keaton had no sound whatsoever. So for me to, to have a career, which now is, is, is a couple decades into it, where I'm actually dealing with an audio-only medium, it's just, it's just wonderful because it allowed me to say, wow, this is, there is a way to paint the picture uh, just with sound. Well, uh, the thing about voice acting, which, as you've noted, uh, is that it's all voice. No expressions, no body language, no costumes, all in the voice. We were fortunate to have voice actor Corey Burton on a few years ago, and i got to say, mm -hmm. I was stunned at how good he was. It's a really a special talent. Yeah, and it's, it's, a, it's, a law, it's not a lost art. It's, it's a narrowed art today. And that's something that's interesting with these classic radio shows. When people redo these radio dramas, more modern versions, and, and a lot of folks have done it, and a lot of folks have done some wonderful jobs uh, with it. The thing that, that stands out is the acting for the microphone is something that you really have to be trained for. The good news is with the, the positive, with so many video games, incredibly elaborate narrative video games, uh, and obviously cartoon voiceovers and things like that, we do have a lot of, of folks who are trained to do everything with, with merely their voice. The other thing that's so important with these classic radio shows, and I think the modern radio attempts lose track of this sometimes, is how vital silence is. Yes. The, the, you need to also know, know when to be quiet. You need to know when to let it play. I remember when we first started doing, uh, putting Radio Classics uh, on satellite radio and incredibly sophisticated technical systems to run a, 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 a satellite radio, hundreds and hundreds of channels and all that. And the technology itself did not like aspects of Radio Classics because, as you know, Silence is deadly in radio. <laughs> yes. You have to fill every single nanosecond. You listen to a top 40 channel, and there's no moment when there isn't some sound going on. Uh, you're taught as a DJ. Make sure you talk right up to the music and whatever. And so it was great because, I mean, it was a little frustrating at first because the, the technology would try to fill or, or react to that silence on Radio Classics. So we had, to, we had to sort of make a specialized technical uh, outline for the channel so we could have that quiet or nothing but a cricket <laughs> or a, a dramatic pause. Uh, and, and to me, that's, that's something that, that is also an art. The silence is just as important 
Uh, Jack Benny tells Jack Benny doesn't have to tell a joke, right? Jack Benny, your money yes. or your life, one yes. of his most famous bits, right, Doug? So yes. he says he pauses. The, 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 um, I think it was Mel Blanc who did it, but the the mugger says, "Your money or your life, bud." And the laughter is there before he even responds, because everyone now knows they anticipate how Jack will answer it, uh, and it's that um, I'm thinking it over, of course. By the way. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but but to me that's that's something that that in many ways was a lost art as well, and that is let give the audience time to breathe. A, a great movie, a great visual where you just stop and look at a scene, you let something play out uh, is is in the same realm. You need to be able to uh, to let it breathe. As much as we are enjoying this, we must take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We're speaking with Greg Bell, the host of Radio Spirits, and so much more. Don't go away. <laughs> 